And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on April 23rd, 2021. Alan Jones is president of Manorview Farms in Moncton, Maryland. He was born in London, England and emigrated to the United States in 1984. Prior to attending Pershire College of Horticulture, Alan gained horticultural experience by working at the Royal Gardens, Windsor Castle and the Saville Gardens, Valley Gardens and Heather Garden in Windsor Great Park. After graduating from Pershire College, he joined Oak Over Nurseries in Ashford, Kent. He joined Princeton Nurseries in New Jersey in 1984 after emigrating to the United States. He became a vice president of Princeton Nurseries before leaving in 1994 to join Manorview Farm in Moncton, Maryland. Along with two partners, Alan purchased Manorview Farm in 2007, one year before the recession. Manorview Farm is a 100-acre nursery growing a wide range of B&B trees and shrubs, a propagation division selling potted shrub liners to other nurseries, as well as an extensive landscape distribution center serving the landscape contractor industry in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and Northern Virginia. Manorview is licensed to propagate introductions from proven winners, Plant Haven, Plant Nouveau, Concept Plants, Plant Tip, and others. Manorview Farm is located in the historic and scenic Milady's Manor in northern Baltimore County, Maryland. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Alan. We're delighted that you can join us today. We have lots of questions for you as a nurseryman in Maryland. You have a wonderful reputation for galvanizing the community in your area. I know that from visiting your location and the amount of work that you do within the Washington DC area and the Baltimore area. It's wonderful to know that you're as busy as you are at this time of the year. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been a, a very uh, challenging spring. Um, after a very busy year last year, uh, this has been an exceptional spring. And uh, I think the, the industry is certainly very fortunate that we were able to do as well as we did last year. And it looks like this year is going to be an even better year. That's what we're hearing from other nursery people and, and garden centers, too, feel the same way. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Right before we went on the air, Alan, you were starting to talk a little bit about some of the challenges, I guess, more over uh, maybe the next 18 months. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're up against in terms of supply or what the issues are? There's a, a shortage right across the country of uh, just about all plant material. Um, you often see it just in trees or shrubs or perennials, but this year it seems to be pretty widespread in uh, all those categories. And, and a lot of this is a result of you know, going back quite a few years, even to the, you know, the recession years when uh, 
there were there were gluts of material and um, prices fell quite dramatically, as as, as often happens. And uh, a lot of growers scaled back or couldn't even afford to to plant, uh, particularly with with trees. Um, and so I think we're seeing part of uh, a result of uh, smaller plantings and also less nurseries. I think they say there was like a 30% reduction in, in acreage planted uh, uh, after the recession. And there was a shortage of material on the West Coast, bare root material um, uh, as, as well. And so I think you're starting to see that now, but also last year was a very busy year and the industry was fortunate that uh, it did as well during, uh, during COVID. Um, but you know, which was a, a pleasant surprise because there was a lot of uncertainty, certainly in, um, in March and April and uh, early May as to what was going to happen with, with, within the industry. And uh, in most cases, we were fortunate that we were considered to be uh, essential. And uh, I think all bar maybe a couple of states, uh, garden centers were able to stay open and landscapers were certainly able to be uh, kept busy and then with everyone working from home and being home a lot more they realize that their gardens and landscapes need to be improved so uh, the industry was uh, in a fortunate position to uh, take advantage of, of, of that situation um, whereas unfortunately other industries were not quite so so fortunate uh, and and this year seems to have uh, uh, continued that trend and a very strong fall season last year used up a lot of material that would normally be available in the spring and so what we're seeing is you know smaller amounts of material and also the material itself particularly with shrubs uh, everything's a size smaller because a lot of it would be material that would normally be sold after a flush so uh, as we as we've often said you know a lot of material is one flush away from needing one flush before the next flush um, <laughs> and so yeah every, every landscape landscapers and landscape architects are really having to learn very quickly that you know, if you're used to seeing a 36 inch boxwood maybe it's going to be 30 inches or 24 inches this year. So uh, substitutions are going to be uh, looked at a lot more often than they have been in the past. But the, the biggest uh, concern really is, you know, what's going to happen later in the year? Because if this trend continues all year, then uh, there'll, there'll be uh, a lot less material available for fall. And if we have a strong fall, that means that next spring there's going to be less material available as well. So uh, it's, it's probably a better situation to wish you uh, had more to sell than having too much. And then uh, the industry is well known for often having uh, overproduced every so often, and then they slash prices and everyone's you know, um, complaining about, uh, we're back to where prices were 10 years ago. So. Uh, sure. Yeah, I think I learned with that recession, you know, as an arborist, I, I watched the nursery industry. I love visiting nurseries. Uh, it's such a nice uh, little break for me to be around younger vital trees because so much of my work is at the back end with either removing uh, something that's dead or, or diseased or the pruning end of things, you know, the maintenance end of things. But uh, 08 and 09 really taught me how the nursery industry is really linked to the economy. I mean, I remember hearing those stories of fields of hornbeams getting cut down because they had exceeded caliper and there's no way that they could be dug and transported from Tennessee up to Philadelphia. I, I was completely unaware. Well, the, the other thing is that, you know, everyone thinks a bigger tree is more, is more valuable, but landscapers learned uh, very quickly 
that you may offer them a, a three or four inch tree at a two inch price when there's a glut, but then they realize it's a lot harder to plant that tree because you need a bigger hole, you need a, a bigger piece of equipment to move it. After reading some of the stories about you in the nursery magazine, you you were able to buy Manor View Farm in 2007, the year before the Great Recession. <laughs> <laughs> and you were able to come out, I, I guess, smiling, because you're smiling now, but that was a while ago. But you you were able to, unlike other people that maybe lost their places or really just sold out because they couldn't make a go of it, you know, what was your secret for, what was your secret of being mean and lean? Well, mean and lean is certainly the way we did it. And just being being prepared and looking ahead and just being very careful not to um, spend too much money, but also communicating a lot with, with our staff. So they understood that everything we did had to be done efficiently, talking a lot with our customers. So we understood where they, they were and also our vendors. And so we had a lot of discussion going on all that time so that uh, we all knew where each other stood and we, we didn't get overextended the big problem we had also, you know, that the banks were not being particularly friendly during that time either. So uh, it, it was an interesting period. And, uh, you know, you, you, you learn from uh, other people's mistakes and uh, you try not to repeat those mistakes. And so I think we came out of the recession a much stronger uh, company uh, for everything that we'd learned uh, during the recession. And uh, we've certainly used some of those uh, techniques and ideas and, and planning procedures um, last year during uh, the beginning of the COVID. You know, the first thing we did, you know, when we when COVID hit was just to look at what we were doing, look at our inventory and just make sure that we didn't overextend ourselves in case uh, we were shut down because that was that was the biggest concern for the first month. The model that you created in 2008 has been looked at by other people in the industry as a model that other people should emulate. And, you know, kudos to you for, and your team for being able to do that because a lot of people didn't survive. And, and I think that um, all industries need to have a following a guru like yourself that, that people can look up to and learn from because you learned from the very best also when you were not only in England and when you were at, at Pembroke, but also when you were at Princeton and, and guiding Princeton during the 1990s, that all plays into a, a big part into your success. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, and it is all relates to the team members as well. So, you know, what we're able to do is a result of having a good team who understood what we were trying to achieve and uh, they believed in what we we're doing. And everywhere you, you, you work, you learn what to do and what not to do. They always say that, you know, you can make mistakes, but don't repeat them um, <laughs> more than once and, and learn from the mistakes that you made. So I, I think you know, you're right. You know, Princeton was a fantastic experience, Princeton Nurseries, and uh, learned a lot there. And, you know, in, in, everywhere you work, you, you pick up something and you learn from within the industry. And that's the one thing that's unique about this industry is that your best friends are often your biggest competitor. And um, the industry is prepared to share ideas, you know, whereas most industries don't because it's uh, 
private information, but you know this industry shares a lot of information and uh, tries to help each other out. Yeah, and I think that that's very true. I know that when I was in the floral business, people said the same thing, that we were interested in sharing information rather than hiding it from one another. And that was how we succeeded. Yeah, well, the motto of IPPS, the International Plant Propagators Society, is to seek and share. And uh, so, you know, that that's all closely connected with the industry. And so I, I think that's what makes it such a unique uh, industry and a uh, unique group of people. Is there an umbrella professional group nationally for, for the nursery industry? Or is it more just like Mance and regional organizations? Each, each state has its own uh, state association, which tend to be very regional. And uh, some are more active and involved than others. There is the National Association American Hort is the main nursery association. And since that- American Hort? American Hort, yes. Uh, that was created when OFA and ANLA merged probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Okay. And so that brought the, the, the greenhouse industry along with the nursery industry and uh, the garden center industry is involved with that group as well as a, a large number of landscape contractors. And then there is a landscape association, uh, NALP, National Association of uh, Landscape Professionals. And then there are other greenhouse groups. But then there's also IPPS is the International Plant Propagators Society, which is really more of a production group now. When it started back in the early 50s, it was just for propagators. And that's an international group that I've been heavily involved in. And there's eight regions around the world. There's three in, in the US and, and North America. There's one in Europe, uh, Japan, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And uh, recently we've been trying to get to region going in China and India. And that's a, a group that meets annually in each region. And then usually there's an international meeting in, in one of the countries each year. Although last year it didn't happen and this year it's not, it's not likely to happen. So that provides industry people a chance to meet and also um, share information around the world to do with production and propagation. And all that information is available on the, on the website and through uh, proceedings that has been produced every year for the last 52, 53 years. So you know that the keys to the survival of the human race are on the shoulders of the people in your profession, right? You know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tongue in cheek. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're trying to plant a trillion trees here, Alan, and uh, we need you to make that happen. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of people planting a lot of trees and growing a lot of trees. So uh, this industry is, is certainly helping you achieve that goal. Well, one of the things that we have uh, a problem with, though, are these forest fires that spring up, especially in California right now. They were saying that we're down over 3 billion trees in the industry. Oh, wow. We should be up to 6 billion, but we only have 3 plus billion in production. Just for us to keep up with what we've lost, we need that 6 billion, and we're down at that by half. And so... Yeah. Um, we think to ourselves, you know, where where is that, the rest of that going to come from? Is it going to be in a small backyard where children are going to be planting seeds and then using it for a little garden somewhere in the neighborhood? Or is that going to be people like yourself where you're going to take on larger projects or propagation? And I, I'm thinking maybe even going a little smaller because that's what's happening now in the industry, going smaller 
but a quicker establishment of the landscape so that it can provide services sooner. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I should mention, you know, you talk about other groups is uh, HRI that you may be familiar with, which is the Horticultural Research Institute, which is connected with American Hort. And, and that is now doing a lot of research. Uh, it funds research through universities and, and other groups, which is looking at not just production, propagation, looking at disease. And, and more recently, actually, it is now looking at the, uh, the benefits of plants for people's well-being which has become, I think, particularly after last year, much more significant. Uh, we, we've known for a long time that, you know, the environmental value of plants, but uh, it's become much more relevant now when you start looking at the well-being and the reduction in anxiety and, you know, just the enjoyment you get from being around plant material and, and people spending more time in their gardens and uh, uh, just being out, out and about uh, amongst plants. On public radio this morning, they had an, uh, a really good show talking about diversity and the reason why we have COVID. And they were talking about if we lose a lot of diversity, the likelihood of diseases are going to increase because we have less diversity. And so we need to be mindful of our environment that we don't lose more critters and algae and fungi because that is actually going to keep us healthier by having a greater diversity. And I think that when you're talking about the HRI um, or your propagators association, I think those are the kind of places that we need to look to for diversity so that we can build healthier environments. Yeah, yeah you're quite correct. Man of you basically is, is 100 acre nurseries. We've got uh, 95 acres of that is, is B&B tree and shrub production. We then also have a, a substantial landscape distribution center, which is where we're working and connecting with the landscape community in this area. But then the other aspect of our business is actually the propagation of, uh, of shrub liners, which will sell to other growers, mainly on the East Coast, but we do ship throughout the whole country. That's a, you know, a good, good part of our business. And we are licensed to work with Proven Winners and Plant Haven and some of the, and Plant, Plant Nouveau, and so we have some of the newer introductions as well as some of the staples. But what's made it sort of unique a little bit for us is that we're supplying the line, the shrub liners to growers that we buy finished product back for the landscape distribution center. So they can use their trucks uh, to backhaul their liners uh, when they've dropped off fully grown material. So we sort of see the beginning and then we see the plants come back in a, in a year or two and then they move on to the landscape. So that, that has certainly helped uh, create that business into, into a, a, a very profitable business. And then we also work with a couple of mail order companies growing some of the um, newer introductions for people like Wayside Gardens and uh, Park Seed and, and some of those people. So it's, it's, it, and that's one thing that uh, helped us through the recession is having that diverse business base because you know, some parts of that business slowed down faster and quicker than the others so and then they picked up quicker or slower than the other parts of the business so that helped you know with cash flow and uh, allowed us to to come out of the recession uh, as, as healthy as, as we did now do other states have landscape distribution centers like you do or is that something that's more of a novelty within the industry no, no it's become uh, it's become quite standard now Manny Shemin was the first person to really create it, and Manaview started about the same time he did, actually. 
and it's now become quite common. You, you find a lot more nurseries now have developed their own little sort of smaller distribution centers just because of the ease and access to plant material. Most growers are not wanting to ship to landscape contractors, particularly when it's a small order. And so while it, obviously you could buy cheaper from a wholesale nursery as a landscaper, it's just the uh, logistics of getting all the material that you need in one place at the same time is, is not as easy as you think. We've seen a, a trend, it's changed a lot in the last few years, is that landscapers are generally not having their own holding yards anymore. 15, 20 years ago, it was quite common, you know, you take a tractor trailer to a holding yard and it'd just be a large order and they'd get a month's worth of material. Whereas now probably 70, 80% of what we ship out goes directly to job sites, residential job sites or, you know, industrial job sites. And so therefore the landscapers are getting smaller orders on a very regular basis. And so that that's made the logistics on our end a little bit more complicated, but we've become very good at that. And in some cases, you know, we've, we've now started to see ourselves as a logistics company and not so much a nursery anymore because, you know, we're trying to keep the landscapers happy by finding 90 or even 100% of everything they need for one job and then delivering it to a job site on a certain day so they can get it planted within a couple of days and they move on to the next job. That's really interesting. I used to use shamans years ago when I had my flower shop because they had certain plants that no one else had. Now that makes sense to me. As a landscape distribution center, they also uh, manage tropical plants as, as well. Yeah, well, Shemins now you know became John Deere and is now Site One, and they are probably they are the largest national organization there in every state, and uh, and and still getting bigger. And they they do a very good job, and uh, and, and you know we're obviously competing with them. And I also think that this is uh, not only a time saver, but it's also an energy saver too when you have a, a distribution center like you have, uh, wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah, we, we had to convince some of our customers over the last 10 years that it's, it's more economic for us to deliver the plant material. And I think most get that now because then they can have their trucks just go straight to the job site with the people and they're not spending all day going around collecting material from different, uh, different nurseries or different distribution centers. And we, we've got a pretty extensive uh, vendor network now that we can find a lot of material and we've got, the, you know, with the contacts we have in Oregon and, and throughout the country, we're actually, you know, pretty, pretty uh, successful at finding most, most items that landscapers are looking for. And I, and I would imagine also that that makes you more desirable to work with because you are a distribution center so that uh, people will, will want to sell more to you because you are the center. That's correct. And, and we, we've, we've made a big deal this year. We started to promote the fact that, you know, we're in partnership with the landscape contractors. You know, we're your supply chain partner. You know, a value proposition that we wrote just recently talks about the fact that we take the anxiety out of plant procurement and we allow the landscapers to then do what they do best, which is designing and installing the plant material and uh, not having to spend the time trying to find it. As, as far as the standards go in your nursery, I know that there's a difference, but the standard of a, a street tree versus a park tree versus um, a tree that's gonna be in, on a residential lawn, do you have them categorized like that or do you just have them uh, done a specific way? No, since, since most of our, cust our landscape customers are high-end residential landscape contractors, 
our goal is to basically have only the very best. So we really only sell that, that top category. If something has been damaged, then we'll have it put to one side and it will be sold separately. Coming to your nursery was such a great experience. And not only is your nursery well-maintained and organized, and it's, it was a real pleasure to, to be able to see it. The other thing that you do is you actually do a lot of trainings too. I've taken some of your classes online and I think they're, they're invaluable for people like myself. For a number of years now, we, we've done an annual um, education seminar. We've invited international speakers, local speakers, generally people who uh, a lot of our customers wouldn't hear from. And, and we, we had a, a virtual one um, in February and we were able to get James Alexander Sinclair from the UK to actually make a presentation. He's a Chelsea Flower Show judge and one of the top landscape contractors in, in the UK. So that, that, that was quite, quite useful. I think we're going to try and do more of those online types of events. But over the last 26 years, we've had a lot of well-known people, you know, including people like Don Shadow and we've had Kurt Brown. Eva, we'll probably have, have you one of these years because, you know, you've got books coming out and it's a good way to promote books. And uh, they, they've been very successful. We've had Alan Armitage and... Uh, then the other things we've done is um, prior to COVID, we were starting to, to invite groups of landscape architects and some of our customers to visit the nursery and uh, provide them with lunch or have a barbecue if it is in the afternoon and then give them a tour of the nursery. Many of them, have, particularly landscape architects, often don't visit nurseries. And um, mm. it's something we need to do more of as an industry is to get them to the nurseries, to see the plant material, so they know what they're specking, just makes it easier to work with them when they actually know what, uh, what, 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 they're, what they're dealing with. I think there needs to be more of that. And I think that that's a wonderful model that you're creating. Uh, I just feel that when you offer something that other people aren't offering, like the special event for architects, it makes a huge difference in our industry for people to see something, as you mentioned, that they might not typically see. Yeah, that's quite, that's quite good. And that's one of the reasons we do it. We're trying to be innovative with, with some of that uh, educational uh, material. A lot of our conversations with our guests circle back to the reality of the climate crisis. And we're up here now, uh, what are we, Eva? Zone 7 yeah, we're now? Zone 7. Zone 7. What oaks do you want to recommend for uh, Philadelphia these days? Well, we, we've, we've seen actually a slight decline in the interest in oaks amongst a lot of landscapers. And it's the same with, with, with beech and a few other trees that get large because it's not something that most people want in uh, residential properties anymore. Yeah. So we've actually reduced. So we're still growing, uh, obviously, white oak and bicolor and, and red oaks. And that's sort of about it for now. We used to have a wider range, but uh, we, and then some of these upright oaks um that we, that we, green pillar and yeah green green pillar that's a good one because actually that's one that i actually found when i was at princeton so it's, that's worked out quite, quite nice. well and then there's um some of the other schmidt introductions have been been quite uh, well received but really oaks and you know, as i say with with beach it's the same thing they just get too big and so people have moved away from a lot of that those those types of plant material just to some of the smaller trees and uh, what we saw last year was a lot of patios being installed. And uh, we were surprised that there wasn't as much plant material going until later in the year. There are trends within the industry and uh, 
and that affects uh, the, the demand for plant material. And I'm sure some of those larger trees and the oaks and the beech will probably come back in a few years' time. But right now, there's, there's uh, certainly not as much interest in, in those larger growing trees as there used to be. Yeah, and I'm hearing that from clients at this end as well. Uh, they get in a panic when the derecho blows through the neighborhood and topples the uh, tulip <laughs> tree and the oak and things like that. And I do wish the palette was a little larger for the uh, medium-sized trees, yeah. you know, and I, I guess that would be like yellow wood and hornbeam or something like that. But it, it feels like there's uh, a lot less choices in that medium-sized category. One of the things that I did this past week is, is helping um, some of the old cemeteries near us. They have um, historic trees that are not in great shape and we're trying to propagate them. This tree is, there's, you don't ever see it around. It's a Tilia platyphyllus, Lassianata, or a variation of Lassianata. And this one here is about 150 years old. It's wow. beautiful. It's just stunning. But where the graft union was, it's it's rotted and broken apart, and the top is really heavy, and they're concerned about the historic monuments. So I went over and we did some cuttings, and we did about 200 cuttings, and then we're gonna I'm gonna go back again in June and July, and we're gonna ship them off to to Longwood Gardens. Maybe we can get you involved. <laughs> and also, may you may need to find someone who can do some budding as well, because uh, budding and grafting possibly. We have that for next winter. And yep. Michael Durr said, if if we're not successful with the cuttings, then he'll be happy to help us. But we, we we need to have more people like that. We know who to call on because these these ancient trees on these properties are just incredible. And you know, how are we going to save that lineage of of genetics for those particular trees for large sites? You know, I think about that in terms of some of the Princeton introductions yeah. that. Uh, you look at that and go, no, yeah, that came from Princeton, <laughs> yes. but I can't tell you where the next one is, yep. and I can't tell you if there's anywhere in the country where you can buy one. Yeah, yeah, and it's always kind of fun to be involved with some of those uh, projects, actually, to try and save some of those trees. We have the historic uh, cemeteries in Philadelphia, and there, there's one tree from uh, William Hamilton that's at the Woodlands, and that is a Zelkova carpinifolia, and... Mm. That's an amazing tree, uh, just very upright. And I keep saying, we need to go propagate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, we, got, we got asked a few years ago by a, a hospital in Baltimore, actually, to come and get cuttings of a weeping cherry that Al Capone had planted that they wanted to keep and, and use as a fundraiser. <laughs> so uh, we've now got this Al Capone weeping cherry. So. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. But those are the kind of things that make people aware of a particular type of tree and they're willing to buy it and you know have it planted in their garden because it has some kind of meaning to them so yeah. i think that's important too yeah. well there's just so much to talk about and i've listened to a few podcasts actually you've done and you know you you, you talk about you know what are some of the problems we're facing in the industry and i think a lot of people have talked about labor and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to mention something that we just started a few years ago. It's the American Landscape Institute, which is a uh, it's a, a, a group we got together to where the industry and the local community college have now work uh, started working together to provide a, an a European style apprenticeship program. And so, mm. um, community college of Baltimore County in Maryland 
has had a, a horticultural program for I don't know, 25, 30 years, but um, it hasn't really been working much with the, the industry until recently. And so what we've done is we, we've set up this uh, program, whereas uh, students, and they, they, they could be out of high school, they could already be working for a nursery, a landscaper, uh, work four days a week, and then go to the community college one day a week. Uh, the employer pays 80% of the cost, the student pays 20%. And if the when the student graduates after two years with a, uh, a certificate in horticulture sustainability, they get their 20% back. So they basically got a free, free education and they do have an opportunity if they carry on for another year of possibly getting an associate's degree. We're about to graduate the third cohort uh, in a couple of months. We've had about maybe 10 or 15 people in each cohort. So it's, it's been an interesting challenge. Uh, it's not always easy to find students who you know, even want to take part in this sort of program. But labor has been in, and will be a major problem for this industry going forward. Uh, we use the H2A and the H2B program, uh, which provides us with seasonal help. But that has its own set of problems and politics gets involved with that as well, unfortunately. We're also concerned about where the, the management and the ownership of nurseries in the future is going to be. There seem to be less horticultural courses being offered by universities. And I heard just very recently, and since you're both from this area, uh, that York College of Pennsylvania in York is going to start a horticultural program this fall. And then there's not many people starting horticultural programs. It's food plants in global use, along with ornamental plants and landscaping. Oh, my. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, uh, that progresses. And uh, I'm hoping to reach out to actually York College and uh, see if there's any way that we as an industry can, can help them to establish this program. That's really fascinating. Because York is fairly close to you, right? Yeah, it's you know, 45 minutes you know, away from, uh, from the nursery. So. I know that when I was teaching at Temple, we would try to get the students out into the industry or help them get positions. But most of our students were going into public horticulture. Yeah. Um, we would have them working uh, on projects, especially in my public horticulture class. They would actually go to a site that might be small, that doesn't have the funding, and they would help to establish a program of some type that would help with the community in the community that they're in. One of them happened to be Wick, the oldest rose garden in the country. And uh, that they continue to grow and, and continue to motivate the community with their programs there. And it, it's really nice. That's in Germantown, right in Philadelphia. Uh, but, you know, I think every university and college has a different bent for where they're heading their graduates. and. And ours had a strong connection with the public gardens. Uh, but I, I love this idea that York College is, is coming up with. And we, we do need to have more uh, trade schools that will provide these types of educations. I know I was very active in horticultural vocation, vocational education up in, in our area. And it seems to the whole program seemed to have closed down because there wasn't enough demand. We were heavily into the greenhouse operations up our way and um, all the greenhouses closed. Yeah. So we lost our program. We didn't have a nursery program, although we did have nurseries near us. We had more people looking at the greenhouses and the floral end rather than the uh, production end. And that's one of the reasons we, we got this uh, American Landscape Institute going because it was a way of providing some sort of, it's sort of vocational training and, and certainly very hands-on training 
to uh, people who had some interest but you know, didn't know whether they want to go to college or not. And so we're, we're certainly trying to expand that program and get more businesses involved to, to help fund it. Towards the end of our show, we usually ask all of our visitors or guests, I should say, what is your favorite tree or your favorite group of trees that you have an affinity for? I'm sure everyone else has told you that's probably a very hard question to, to answer. But generally, you know, um, Trinanthus virginicus is one of my favorite trees. And actually, uh, we, we, we did introduce one a few years ago, but it's so hard to propagate that it, it basically hasn't gone anywhere within the industry. It just flowers at a very young age. It was called white knight because it was male. And as you probably know, the males tend to be much more floriferous and showy than, than the females do, but you don't get the, the fruit. But then also hamamelis and parodia um, and other favorites as well. And then Halicia is something that um, at one point I, was trying, I had quite a collection of Halicia and particularly um, Vestida, which has a much larger flower. We were able to get some of that plant material in from Germany when I was at Princeton, which and it wasn't in the US at the time. And now, you know, it, it's a fairly well established uh, selection uh, amongst the, uh, the tree production nurseries. I'm sorry, what was the first one you gave us, Alan? Chinanthus virginicus. Oh, okay, I've heard yes. of White Knight too because yes. I've, I saw it in somebody's catalog. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I donated a number to the Longwood uh, Rare Plant Auction and uh, Pleasant Run used to grow it for a while. Uh, it has to be budded. Um, it, we haven't found a way to propagate it from cuttings, um, so therefore you, you get some budding compatibility sometimes, um, and, and that sort of presents its own set of problems. But uh, but it, it, it's still out there, and there are there are a few selections of Chinathus virginicus which are available. I uh, actually stood with a crew member this week and we were scratching our heads and I said, I think Halicia is one of the hardest trees to develop. You know, I, I think we were looking at a three inch diameter tree, but uh, do you try to get a, a strong central lead or what do you do? Just play with it to... Uh... Uh, no, we, we try and get as a central leader. Halicia, I love Halicia. We had one at uh, Temple and it was pink and it had yep. knocked over by a... Uh, a sweet gum that fell and it turned into a big shrub. So I had my Longwood students come to do a pruning session there. And I said to them, okay, now the, the goal of this pruning is going to be to get a central leader for this rosia, uh, Halesia Carolina rosia. And, and it, no, well, what, this is gonna ruin it. I said, trust me, you just close your eyes, cut it off all and we're gonna pick a leader. So they did and they couldn't believe that there was this tree within this shrub and when we got it done, they were they were like, "What? This is unbelievable!" Yeah, that's once good. you get that, once you get that central leader, wow, they are stunning. They really are. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Alan. It's been uh, really terrific to uh, meet someone like you that's uh, doing all this great work, uh, especially with the whole propagation thing. Uh, like I said earlier watching trees fall down and have cavities and insect and disease issues. It's like visiting the, the nursery at the hospital and seeing a, a, a room full of babies. Well, it's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure to, to, to join you too. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, these sort of podcasts are, are fascinating. I, I, I participated in one with uh, Peter Seabrook, actually, at the end of last year, who's a gardening journalist in the UK. And it, it was fascinating talking with him because 
we had s some similar things uh, in, in our backgrounds, um, particularly when it came to dealing with some of you know, the, the royal estates. So that was kind of interesting. So. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I know this is a very, very busy time of year for you, but we certainly do appreciate the fact yep. that you came on our, our show. Okay, really my, appreciate my, my it. pleasure. Take care. Thank mm -hmm. you.